Hey, everybody. Welcome to our next episode of the Simba Simbi podcast series. To everybody that doesn't know, Simba Simbi represents an idea of holding up that which, that which holds you up. Right? We want to make sure that we emphasize as the student circle, the intellectual giants and the heroes from which we come. And so with that, I am honored, honored to be in the presence of Dr. Huberta Jackson-Lohman. I'll be reading a brief bio, just so people get a sense of the scale, the scale of scholar that, that we're dealing with right, right now. So Dr. Huberta Jackson-Lohman is a professor of psychology and a past chair of the Department of Psychology at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, Florida where she teaches graduate and undergraduate students. She has a doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Pittsburgh, a Fulbright Hayes scholar and editor of the anthology, African-American Women, Living at the Crossroads of Race, Gender, Class, and Culture. Her postdoctoral career spans nearly 40 years and has consisted of roles in both the private and public sectors. She's the immediate past president of the National Association of Black Psychologists. She is certified through the Association of Black Psychologists as a diplomat and fellow in African-centered psychology. While living in Pittsburgh, among her many roles, she served as the director, executive director of the Mayor's Commission on Families, an initiative developed by the late Mayor Richard Caligari, designed to address the high Black infant mortality rate in Pittsburgh, and as co-director of the Institute of Black Families, which was housed at the University of Pittsburgh. She has led the Tallahassee Community Healing Coalition in the implementation of Tallahassee Community Healing Days, a national community healing network initiative for the past nine years. And recently this group was recognized by the Community Healing Network for their work. Dr. Jackson Lohman's research examines the relationships of women of African ancestry and explores the use of cultural strategies in socialization of black youth. An emerging area of research focuses on the use of cultural standards and policy to reset standards and norms in troubled black communities and foster a sense of agency and empowerment. She's a wife, mother of three adults, grandmother of five, and a godmother. Whew. Oh man. Oh man, thank you, Mama Huberta, for joining us today. Is there, is there anything I'm even missing? Oh no, no. I, I think you said it all. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to join you this, this afternoon or this evening or whenever we are. Exactly. Let's <laughs> have this conversation. Exactly. Okay, right. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man, so I, I would like to just hop into it immediately. Um, so for me, right, as a student, one of the things that uh, captured me, I think, about your work and yeah, your work for the past few decades has been about centering the idea and the, the almost like the project of developing like African-centered womanhood and girlhood. And before even hopping into your maybe specific theories around that, I'm curious because I've come across understandable, I think, criticisms from um, some students that say African-centered psychology as initially developed was too patriarchal and heterosexist and that the landscape of the field was very, very like male dominated to the point where people didn't really feel like they could find room to contribute or that their ideas would be as valued. So I'm curious in your development as a, as a scholar, what was your experience of African-centered psychology like as a field? And yeah, like what, I guess, motivated you to make this 
your, your, your initial impact? Well, I have to go back to my graduate school experience. <clears throat> As you indicated, I was um, a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh. And this was during a time when we really had probably the largest preponderance of Black students uh, ever in the Department of Psychology, um, basically because of an initiative that Dr. Robert Williams, uh, who was the president of the Association of Black Psychologists, one of the early presidents, uh, who recently made his transition. Um, that initiative led to uh, many institutions finally opening up and bringing in Black students. And so we had a, uh, a relatively large group of Black students at the University of Pittsburgh. And, and that was wonderful. But what I was finding uh, in my graduate school experience is that I could not find myself in that curriculum. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just wasn't there. And I just could not really relate to it. So fortunately, at the University of Pittsburgh, they had just uh, a few years earlier established the African Studies Department and a Black Studies Department. And so what I would do is I would go and just kind of sit in classes over in Black Studies. You know, I would just kind of go there and just kind of sit in. I wasn't actually formally taking a class, but they had a class called Black Psychology. And that was really fascinating to me. I mean, I love this course and the instructor. It was not in the psychology department. It was over in, like, in Africana Studies. But then eventually I began to realize that my story also as a Black woman wasn't included in that. Mm -hmm. and, and I was still missing uh, part of, you know, as much as I enjoyed and appreciated all that I was getting out of the uh, Black psychology course, um, there was still something missing for me. And so um, several students, um, colleagues of mine, other, uh, three other sisters that I was in, uh, attended the University of Pittsburgh with, we got together and we created the first course on the psychology of black women uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. And um, that was, you know, that turned out to be a real journey for us in terms of not only delving into you know, what uh, are the experiences of Black women psychologically and, you know, how it affects us in terms of our uh, relationships, our feelings about self and, you know, in, in many, many different respects. And so uh, that led to us, I mean, we created our own organization and um, a consulting firm. We started to do a lot of consultations and retreats and presentations and all kinds of things of that sort. So, you know, we did that for probably maybe, I would say maybe about 10 years. And then we kind of all went our separate ways. And, but I uh, kind of continued it and had always wanted to, um, wanted to uh, develop a book or something because what I would do, when we first started talking about the psychology of black women, uh, we couldn't find ourselves in psychology books. We couldn't find ourselves in African Black psychology, uh, you know, books or research uh, for the most, well, not research, but books. And so we used novels and uh, as our uh, source. But eventually what happened is that, you know, as um, more and more um, Black women, women of African ancestry recognized that there was a dearth in this area. Um, more and more research, more and more books started to be developed. And um, eventually, finally, 
I um, decided to do an anthology uh, a few a number of years ago. And, and actually, I'm getting ready to put out my second edition of that anthology uh, addressing uh, African-American women. So that's kind of how I got into this. It was, um, you know, kind of um, backdoor, I, I, I guess you could say, um, way of falling back into recognizing that um, there was still something missing. You know, as much as I appreciate African Black psychology, but there was a need to really address women. Mm -hmm. That's is so fascinating to me, and I'm. You, you said backdoor. I, I immediately thought that it sounds like you. It wasn't even like sneaking through a back door. You had to almost open up the whole building, create a whole <laughs> whole new front door, right? It was. We have to reorganize how we even think about these ideas in and of themselves which is, that's a revolutionary project. And I'm curious, you said, uh, so you, you weren't in like some of the psychology books, the African-centered psychology books. And so you turned to novels. Are there any particular novels? That, that you well, we use a lot of Toni Morrison. Yeah. <laughs> Toni Morrison was one of the uh, ones that we, Bluest Eye, Sula, you know, um, and uh, I think Gloria Naylor, I, I can't even remember all the ones we use now, but um, that's what we started with. And, and actually, I mean, there is where you really can find a very um, authentic, I think, uh, picture of what is going on with Black women psychologically. You just, you know, it's very real. And we have some wonderful um, uh, Black women and African women authors who have uh, written stories that I think that probably do a better job even than those of us who are in the field of psychology. Because mm -hmm. they, they can talk about the day-to-day -day lived experiences mm -hmm. of uh, women of African ancestry. And from that, that's what we can draw from to help us to better understand who we are. I love that so much because it sounds I think, right, so often there's a, a level of siloing, <clears throat> like between different fields and different disciplines. And to the point that you're making, that, that siloing is purely of, right, the, the academy, the institution, or you still have somebody like a Toni Morrison who's able to so clearly, right, see the roots of like the, the psychological realities, right? Yes. And make those real that- Absolutely. Can serve as a foundation for, for the theory around like, African-centered psychology of black women and so, so what were those initial I guess like theoretical underpinnings what were the initial things that you saw I guess in those books that gave rise to some of the theory and philosophy that you would go on to produce <clears throat> wow well uh, gee that's a good <laughs> question <laughs> a deep question um but certainly um I, I think one of the things I would say is that we could kind of identify with these women that we were reading about. And for example, if we took The Bluest Eye um, by you know, Toni Morrison, which is a, a, a very well-known, one of her very well-known books, um, one of her many well-known books, I should say, um, the struggles of Pocola uh, in that book. I think that as um, Black women, as Black girls, that we could probably all pretty much identify uh, with this whole notion about of um, not appreciating who we were 
as African women. And whether it had to do with our skin color, our hair texture, you know, our body image, we could appreciate those kinds of things. And also the kind of pain and the kind of, you know, um, suffering that many of us might have experienced. You know, just uh, a side note in relationship to that. And when we started to teach that course, and actually I still see it today, uh, when we started to teach that course, um, actually we were teaching it at a uh, community college. And most of the people, the women that were in the course were actually older because we were young at that time, were actually older than us. And they were very verbal, very active and engaged in the class. And they had, you know, because they could tell us about their lives. I mean, they had lived these things and we were just trying to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so, um, but it was so interesting to see that when we would get to the topic of concepts of beauty, we would have crickets. It would just be crickets. It was like, no, nobody had anything to say all of a sudden. And, you know, and what we were realizing, of course, is that uh, there was a lot of deep, unresolved pain that we carry, many of us carry, and many of us still carry it uh, in terms of issues around our uh, physical appearance and uh, how we've been judged and evaluated and seen as not uh, as less attractive, as, even as ugly, you know, as inferior, those kinds of things. And so many of us are still carrying the pain uh, in relationship to that. So when we get to those kind of topics, um, not as much today, but we still see it to a certain degree, silence. Mm -hmm. Oh, so I think this is so, I think this is so cool. And so this could be like a, a mini educational moment for me also. <clears throat> And so, as I understand, I guess, Black psychology, it's, and again, please, like, reframe and reorient me as I, as I need to be, it's, it kind of deals with uh, almost, almost like a revolutionary, you know, mm -hmm. approach to psychology against, like, the oppression that takes place in, 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 the, U, in the U.S. or against, like, racial oppression uh, mm -hmm. broadly. Whereas like African-centered psychology is about like going back to the actual root before all of that. Like what was our like natural way of being and what does psychology look like when we center that, right? And so what I hear you articulating is through the lens of like a, a black psychology, the, how deep rooted the ideas around, you know, not just blackness, but black women having to internalize fears of not being beautiful, of being inadequate, and how people could live their whole lives, have all these experiences and still have them, almost like not have the vocabulary to feel comfortable sharing, right, their mm -hmm. experience of that, of that trauma. Is, mm -hmm. is that, okay. Yes, absolutely. Very much the case. And then, so I'm curious, like, based on this anthology work that you, you, you put together, what are some of the, I guess, interventions that, mm -hmm it can be arrived at based in like this understanding of black girlhood, uh, African-centered girlhood, womanhood. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I, I guess um, for me, everything begins with self-knowledge and not just for me. I think for us as people of African ancestry, everything begins with self-knowledge, know thyself. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that um, in terms of intervention, 
that that's really where it has to start with self-knowledge. Um, and that self-knowledge, you know, um, and I, let me just, let me put self-knowledge in the context of self in the extended sense, which is how we talk about it in, you know, African Black psychology. Uh, we see self as extended. So that we, we need to then engage in um, this act of going back and retrieving that knowledge, uh, you know, the Sankofa uh, process that we engage in and which is connected to this notion of ancestral self and that ancestral self referring to, of course, the blood that even flows through our veins, that literally we are our ancestors. So if we are to know who we are, we need to also know our ancestors um, because we're not just this contemporary self, uh, the self that was born at whatever date and uh, then dies at whatever date. That's not all of who we are, that we are much more expansive than that. So helping us first to kind of understand and appreciate that I think is important. So one of the things that I do is I, and the way actually I even set up my anthology was around uh, the three questions that um, Franz Fanon posed to us. Um, who are we? Uh, the identity issue. Are we really who we think we are? The authenticity issue. And are we all we ought to be? The purpose issue. And so in that um, identity issue, one of the things that I do, you know, certainly we want to encourage people to go back and learn more about their own personal ancestry, but we have to also learn more about our collective ancestry uh, and what might be referred to in a model that I like to use as the totem self, that um, we need to uh, understand what African women prior to uh, our enslavement prior to colonization and those things. We need to understand who they were because that's who we are also. And so if we recognize that African women were doing all kinds of things, we were market women, we were warriors, we were healers, we were leaders, uh, we did everything. And um, we um, brought those things with us. And even if we look at um, more contemporary experiences, you know, after we were forcibly brought here and enslaved, um, the kinds of things that our enslaved foremothers did and um, those uh, after we, we quote unquote got uh, released from shadow slavery uh, did, we see that we have always been uh, very actively engaged in endeavors that uh, address the needs of our families, the needs of our communities. I mean, that's always been a part of who we were. We were activists, we were healers, we were teachers and educators. I mean, we were all of these things. And so if we want to have a um, full understanding of who we are, we have to go back and begin to uh, this is where history comes in also, because I, I bring in a lot of history into this because um, there's no psychology without history. I mean, how are we going to talk about psychology if we don't know anything about history kind of thing? So um, um, bringing in that history to help us to begin to understand who we are. Um, there's a quote that I like to share with my students from uh, Polly Murray. And she says that uh, a system of oppression draws much of its strength from the acquiescence of its victims who have accepted the dominant image of themselves as inferior and are paralyzed by a sense of helplessness. Mm -hmm. 
And so essentially, you know, what oppression does to us is that uh, it uh, removes any sense of who we are. And then it replaces us, replaces um, that uh, identity with this uh, inferior sense of who we are. And so if we're um, actually going to begin to uh, address um, uh, and heal ourselves, we have to kind of go back and retrieve all of this information, uh, this knowledge about who we were even prior to our enslavement. We can't just begin there because our history didn't begin there either. Wow, wow, wow. And I'm hearing you speak and I love what you said about the no and I'm sure somebody could probably correct me and I, he wrote a lot about, right, the, the, the stress that occurs from, you know, being as a, existing in the world as a black person and believing that a white person holds humanity. And so you shift and you do as much as you can to try to fold into you know, whiteness. And ultimately that's a contradiction that, that can't exist because it was con like constructed in opposition to your very, very being. And as I'm, as I'm hearing you, you speak and, and apply that also to right, the, the struggle of black womenhood, I'm also thinking about how there are existing also like in, in a patriarchy, right? There are men who have a particular vision of what a woman should look like, even in revolution, right? Even as they, as people want to construct ideas of what it means to be a free black person of, of black nationalism, there's still like a very patriarchal understanding of the woman's role in that system as like an assistant. And I'm wondering how you've, I'm sure you've maybe seen, you know, men who have, who have those ideas and there, there are probably some men who've had those ideas within, you know, this particular field. I know for a fact that there are. Um, how, how do we like shift that conversation among men who think themselves as, they don't think of themselves as like as, as, as victims. They don't think themselves, they think they're, they're the warriors. They think they're the main, you know, people carrying, carrying this particular torch all the while almost accidentally subjugating people who've served as leaders. Again, like you go to the Haitian revolution, whatever revolution you want to talk about, you can't talk about that without black women in a position of leadership. So mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I'm wondering about how you, what, what, what you, what you think about when you, when you come across those ideas? Wow, um, what do I think about? <laughs> um, hmm. I don't know that I um, have any particular strategy that I use in terms of dealing with those kinds of ideas. I mean, just kind of acknowledging and recognizing that's where people are. Um, and um, hmm. I, don't, I don't think that I get into um, these power struggles or you know, arguments in relationship to that. Um, and you know, I, I do have to also recognize that I grew up probably in a patriarchal household. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure that that still probably has an impact. I know it still has an impact on me. And uh, even though my mother was a very, very, very strong woman and you know, my father definitely didn't, couldn't run over her or anything like of that nature. Yeah. And, um, but uh, it was definitely a patriarchal household 
and some of the things that he said to me, even about how I was proceeding in my life, um, were kind of suggesting to me that I was not really necessarily behaving like quote unquote women should behave. You know, that there were things that I needed to, um, I was trying to remember some examples, things that I needed to um, do differently. Uh, well, I do just remember just even growing up, you know, just the difference in terms of how I was treated versus my brothers, mm -hmm. my sister and I versus my brothers and those kinds of things. Uh, so I did grow up with that. And so I think that's probably something that I'm uh, constantly uh, having to uh, deal with in my own personal life. Uh, just, you know, how do I manage men who think that they are um, all that and um, consider women to be less um, uh, less important, less intelligent, you know, have less to contribute uh, than they do. Um, I think I try to probably as much as possible avoid being in those kind of environments. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the strategy that I use more often than not is just not to necessarily be in that kind of environment. You know, uh, one of the things about being in the uh, spiritual tradition that I'm in is that women have a very high place in it, mm -hmm. everything. Um, but not that ideas of patriarchy don't seep in because you know, we've all been kind of socialized in this environment. And so those ideas are going to, you're gonna probably find them everywhere you go. Uh, but um, I, I, I think that probably what I've done in my life is just trying to find environments that are much more compatible with the way that I like to function and would not necessarily kind of suppress me and keep me from being able to kind of do the things that um, I feel that I can do and want to do. Really quickly, would you be willing to say a little bit about the spiritual tradition from which you're speaking about? Well, um, we often refer to it as Yoruba uh, and it evolves from the Yoruba tradition. I'm a part of what is called the Lukumi branch. Uh, which is the um, branch that comes out of Nigeria to Cuba mm -hmm. and is maintained in Cuba. And then from Cuba, it is passed on to uh, African-Americans here in this country. And basically what we're talking about is the worship of uh, the Orisha, uh, the Orisha forces of nature and um, the veneration of our ancestors. And how do we, uh, live in harmony and balance with these forces of nature and uh, maintain these connections with our uh, ancestors. And this recognition that we all come here with a, a um, divine um, purpose, uh, that you know, we all have a special purpose that we are here to fulfill. And so through the tradition then, you know, through helping you to learn how to be in harmony and balance with these various forces, um, this should help to facilitate your being able to live your life in the, the healthiest uh, way possible, in the most fulfilling way possible. And, and this is what I think is so interesting and what I was so excited about to get the chance to speak to you because professionally, right, um, you have a you've had a long career as a psychologist, but to just capture the work that you do under the idea of psychology, it feels almost too small and too limiting, 
<laughs> right? I, I'm, I'm going to make the assumption. I think a lot of the way we understand people and, and spirit and being in community and being with the the land and, and, and the earth, right? I think might pull more strongly from that spiritual tradition than the field <laughs> of psychology. So are there ways that you've witnessed or experienced like your practice of psychology or understanding of psychology shift or, or, or merge? Or does it or does it mainly come from that 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 specific branch of the Yoruba that you mentioned? Uh, um, yeah, I guess I could say that, um, you know, as particularly as I've grown and learned and had, you know, various life experiences, you know, they're not these little separate uh, silos that you mentioned in terms of life. And I, I, I believe that I am integrating more of all of who I am. I think earlier on, it was much more difficult for me to do that because it was almost like, because I, you know, I spent some time in private practice also. Mm. And I can remember early on feeling very like um, afraid uh, to bring in my, this more African um, sense of who I am into how I was actually working with the clients that I was serving, even though there were people of African ancestry. Uh, because of the uh, kinds of standards that the psychology board has about how you should practice and you know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, those kinds of things. And you know, I've gradually learned to kind of uh, uh, bring all these things together. But I think part of it too is that trying to again locate myself in spaces where I will feel more comfortable and being authentic, being my authentic self. I don't feel like I have to, okay, I go to work and this is what I am. Then I come home and this is what I am. Yeah. And then I go out into the community and this is what I am. That I can have a much more uh, integrated sense of who I am. I hope that addresses the questions you were asking me. No, that, <laughs> that nails it. That, that, that nails it in, in, a, in a perfect way. And one of the things I was going to lead into as well, and I, I think it goes well right about here, is I think one of the products of that integration that you, you're speaking about is what was the production of the emotional emancipation circles mm -hmm. and those as, as a, as a community-based intervention. And I'm wondering if you could speak about how those came about, like your role in those. And then yeah, I, I know you, played a huge role in community healing days and, and, and leading mm -hmm. those. So I, I would love to hear a little bit about mm -hmm. that. Well, um, actually, I think about 10 years ago, uh, Enola Aird, who is the founder of the Community Healing Network, came to the association. And um, um, at that time, our uh, president was Dr. Cheryl Grills. And she wanted uh, to establish this collaboration with the association uh, to develop the emotionally emancipation circles. And so we began that work. Um, a number of us were part of uh, that initial development of a curriculum, a self-help curriculum uh, that was designed to debunk this whole myth of um, uh, Black inferiority and to um, promote the truth about who we are as African people. So um, we started that work and um, 
fortunately, um, Dr. Grills, um, Dr. Cheryl Grills has been very uh, much engaged in helping to provide leadership around training of uh, facilitators and helping to further develop the curriculum. Um, and we have now people that are all over the world who have been trained as um, uh, facilitators for the emotional emancipation circles. So uh, this is something that's kind of caught on like wildfire actually. Uh, I have been, um, well, we did do a couple here in Tallahassee. I, I plan to do more as soon as I can get a little bit more time, like maybe once I retire, yeah. I'll be able to get back to it. But, uh, but um, uh, it is definitely something that uh, many people have gotten great benefit from. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a structured curriculum, um, but it is one that allows people to kind of explore how this myth of black inferiority has um, uh, oppressed us and kept us from being able to achieve all that we can achieve in our lives and be all that we can be in our lives. And also it helps us to begin to move towards uh, reestablishing community again, uh, because um, one of the things that I think that uh, we have lost uh, or that has been diminished, maybe loss is not the best word, but it certainly has been diminished, I think, is this sense of community that once existed. I think, you know, there have been so many things that have happened, like, you know, uh, uh, desegregation, for example, mm -hmm. and um, uh, urban renewal and uh, redlining and gentrification, all these things that have kind of undermined Black communities. And so that has, I think, has uh, contributed to uh, diminish a sense of community and our ability to kind of work together collectively to solve our problems. Because now we're kind of like scattered about, you know, we're not uh, as, uh, we're not necessarily in one place, we're in a lot of different places. And it's uh, more difficult for us to kind of come together and work together to solve uh, our problems and address our needs. Yeah, so, and this is really cool for me. So um, I was able to help out with the, I think we talked about this before, I was able to help out with the Salabona Healing Circle Initiative. Um, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, the Salabona Healing Circles are a, a virtual intervention uh, based in a lot of the same work, based in the, based in the emotional emancipation circles. Right, the, the same people that developed those were able to help consult, and it's a it's a virtual initiative for uh, specifically for the pandemic. And to the point you're making about all the ways in which our communities have been disrupted, you add on top of that a coronavirus that actively keeps people right from being in the same place and being with one another. And I'm, I'm fascinated because I'm somebody right who at this moment is at the almost inception. Right, so we 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 rolled out the initiative, we've been training people, we've been holding circles. And I haven't seen like what that long-term kind of impact is. When you talk about helping people relearn how to be in community with one another, right? And you can go back to, like you mentioned, the great migration, all these things that just took people, took families and put them in different places. Uh, what, what have you seen, I guess, in terms of the ability for such an intervention and such works to help people relearn how to be in community with one another? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess one of the things that um, 
uh, happens in these kinds of uh, circles is that uh, we begin to recognize that our fates are linked, mm. that we're not alone. And that is so important because a lot of times, you know, because we're not having these kind of conversations with each other, um, we think that it's something that's my personal issue, my problem uh, to address. And we don't recognize that this is something that we're experiencing collectively. Uh, so, you know, that's really, really, I think, um, important. And in addition to that is once we begin to recognize that our fates are linked, then also I think one of the things that happens is that we recognize that we can do something about our conditions. Mm -hmm. And so that sense of empowerment uh, can begin to uh, develop. And, um, and, and, and in fact, actually with the emotion emancipation circles, that's where we want to go. You know, it's not just that we are going to debunk our, uh, these myths that we've internalized and just learn about who we are. Uh, but we also are gonna recognize that we can do something about the conditions that we happen to be in. And that once we do something about those conditions, then that you know we can begin to experience a sense of power that we actually have. Uh, and also to recognize that um, that power is much greater when we work together, you know, as we say, sticks in a bundle are unbreakable. Yeah. So um, that we can uh, begin to organize ourselves and to use our, our power effectively. So, you know, those are, I think, some of the things that I think that um, can and do happen, you know, as a result of uh, being able to participate in these kinds of um, activities. Wow. Oh man, I, and I know you've written a lot about, um, you've written a lot about, I believe, Ubuntu in, in communities, right? And the ability for such interventions to, right? I've written a little. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say a lot. <laughs> well, for me, again, yeah, somebody who's junior, who's, who's coming into it, everything you've written feels like a lot. Every time I read it, I'm like, yo, she's really, she's really been doing it. <laughs> um, and, and, and the ability, right, of these interventions to, did you shape how we understand right being? Like, You've you mentioned that a lot, but just shifting from a completely individualistic sense of like, I'm an individual separate from everybody. I have to look out for me and myself and my own to, you know, I exist because we are. Like, I'm very much tied to the people around me. I'm tied to my ancestors. I'm tied to the people who will, who come after. Right? That, that uh, I think that's one of the most powerful ideas I've gotten from, um, I don't know, being a part of ABCI, again, witnessing the work that you do. <laughs> so I think it's so inspirational. Um, and with, with that in mind, I'm also wondering about, I think that's one of the more pressing issues that, I mean, there, there's so many, but when you look at the, the increased rate of, of suicide among, among black adolescents and black children, but also a lot of it's also driven by black girls uh, specifically, what do you believe is this? Is, is it a further disruption of community? Are like are we leaving our black girls like in further isolation? Is there a virtual or like, social media aspect of it that is serving to further separate people under the myth that it's uniting people? I'm curious how you think about what's yeah. going on for our black. Youth. It's interesting you bringing that up because actually 
um, colleague and some students that are working on a paper that's addressing just that thing um, <laughs> about what is happening in our communities in terms of the increase in, in Black um, youth suicide. And I think you hit the nail on the head, though, that I think it has to do with the um, lack of community. Mm-hmm. That, you know, uh, one of the questions that has been raised by uh, some of the suicidologists is, you know, why is it now that we have these increases in suicide when um, years ago, and it's probably more than 50 years because these increases have been going on for the past 50 years, actually. It's been gradually increasing. Um, Years ago, though, even though we were still experiencing all these hardships associated with our racism and discrimination and the poverty and the unemployment and, you know, all these things were going on, but our rates didn't seem to be uh, escalating at the rate that they are escalating now. So what happened? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, part of what has happened is that our communities have disintegrated, mm-hmm. that those support systems that were there that protected us. Now, we could be poor, but if you're poor and you don't have those, that, those protective support systems there for you, then you're very vulnerable, you know? Uh, and so I think that's part of what is happening is that we don't, we don't see um, the same level of protection in terms of um, the, in, on an interpersonal level, uh, even our families, if you think about what's happening in our families now, we have um, the majority of our families are uh, women-headed families. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have um, this over-incarceration of both black men and black women. So mm-hmm. uh, black men who have been placed into the prison system as well as black women. Uh, we have the um, over-disciplining of black girls and you know we see um and you know now we're talking about this whole thing of adultification uh Mm -hmm. of black girls but also black boys too this is a a black youth and they are treated as if they're older they don't get the same privileges and grace let's say that other uh other youth uh, who are uh white get so these kinds of things and so um, one of the questions I often ask is, where is the protection for Black girls? Mm-hmm. Um, we, have, we know that for Black girls, uh, by the time they reach 18, uh, probably about 40% of them have experienced sexual assault or, or rape or sexual abuse, those kinds of things. Um, these things take a great toll on us psychologically. And then now we add in social media yeah. where, um, we have people who might be engaged in cyberbullying and things of that sort. Um, at one of the uh, schools that uh, I was working with in Pittsburgh, uh, one of them um, decided that they were going to um, uh, not allow the kids to bring in their, their uh, cell phones. And as a result of them not bringing in their cell phones, what they found is that the number of fights decrease because what what they were doing was they were planning their fights on, on their phones. And so they find, well, meet me after school with this particular place so we can you know, get it on, that kind of thing. And so once they removed those, then they were able to help to reduce that. But we know that um, you know, things like cyberbullying can, can occur. And uh, to whatever degree 
uh, our youth are just involved with you know social media without adult supervision and um, you know they may be exposed to those kinds of things and less involvement of um, various adults, not just their parents. Because one of the things that did exist in our communities was that we had a network of people that were concerned about the children. It wasn't just, this is my child and nobody else can say anything to my child. It was a whole community that could be looking out uh, for your child and making sure your child was staying on the uh, righteous path, if you will, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. So, you know, these kinds of things have broken down. So that leaves our children very vulnerable and very unprotected. And Black girls in particular have always been, we've always had this uh, yeah, not enough protection for us. So that's, um, you know, I think that's part of what we're experiencing in relationship to these increases. Yeah, it's... it's... And it really does feel so bleak because, you know, as you mentioned, right, being at a particular school, maybe where, you know, people are, uh, maybe people are more impoverished. And so there's an increased police presence leading to increased community disruption, people being more isolated. And on the flip side, right, on the flip side, you could have people that let's say they're from like a more like well-to-do community. You have people that go to schools, like maybe they're middle class, upper middle class, but they're like the only handful of black people in that school. And that's a constant like socialization process of being told from like your teachers to your peers on, on, to your, on social media, right? That blackness is inferiority, right? Everything. And again, to the point of th there could be some, some of these generational divides between as people move from their communities, move to these different neighborhoods, I could say that I personally had an experience of neither of my parents were from where I grew up, right? And so as much as there was a level of you know, concern and wanting to take care, a lot of them didn't know what it was like to grow up in a particular, th this particular neighborhood because they didn't have that experience in and of themselves, right? So all these, the, whether it be generational, whether it be the, the technological aspect of it, the actual peer, all these different types of isolation it, it could feel it could feel very overwhelming, and mm -hmm. to the point, it, 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 it's fruit for all types of cultural misorientation, right? Like somebody could write a whole paper. I hope somebody's writing a paper on like how technology at this point like rat like makes fast makes even faster the process of cultural misorientation today. Uh, how would you say somebody again like within this context then, with such with the understanding that maybe our natural, the more healthy way of understanding ourselves is in community and is in like the, the, the collective. How do you find wellness? How do you find well-being, right? With so much discord. Wow, how do you find it? Ooh. Um, are you asking on a personal level or how do you find that, how do we find it collectively? I'll say collectively, I guess collectively. <laughs> collectively, how do we find it? Well, I think that uh, the things that we are actually engaged in, you know, you're talking about the style bonus circles, and we mentioned the emotional emancipation circles, and, you know, these are community healing days. I mean, these are the things that I think that we're doing to kind of reconstruct this sense of community. Mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> for us, the, um, 
it's, it, it's always in relationship. You know, it, these, that's typically the way that we um, are able to experience a sense of um, fully being human. It is in relationship, in community. And so we, we're um, trying to reconstruct as much as possible uh, places and spaces where we can be in community with each other, uh, where we can share and talk about our stories um, and um, just be with each other. And so, you know, I think that, you know, even though we're in this environment that we're in right now, um, we have even attempted to do that through media, as you mentioned, in terms of the song bonus circles, that we have to find ways to kind of connect with each other. This, um, our wellness is not something that is achieved um, in isolation uh, individually. I mean, even with me just, you know, I'm going to, let's say, uh, try to exercise more. So I'm gonna put my video on and I'm gonna be <laughs> uh, watching uh, somebody do, um, some kind of um, what um, exercise, whatever yoga, whatever it happens to be. Um, that's not even enough either, because I need to be in community. I really do need to be connected to other people, and uh, so the more of those kinds of spaces that we can create uh, for each other and with each other, I think um, the healthier we we will all be. And we won't find so many of us falling through these cracks and deciding that our lives are not worth living. So that's part of it. You know, the other thing I would say too, and this is something that Maladoma Somme talks about too, is the importance of ritual. Mm. And that um, ritual is, um, you know, our connection to divine too. This is how we connect to divine. But, and the rituals need to occur uh, on, he talks about the level of the individual. You know, what are my personal rituals that connect me to divine? What are the rituals that I do as a family that connect us as a family and connect us to divine? And what are the rituals that we do as a community? And so that we need those rituals that we do collectively, just like we need the rituals that we do within our family. And it might be things like family reunions and gatherings that we have, uh, as well as the rituals that we do individually. It might be our our meditation, our prayers, and whatever those kinds of things are. But all of those things are important. So we're reconstructing um, the rituals. We're creating these healing kinds of spaces. We are putting back in place as many um, folks are doing that like we have uh, here in Tallahassee, a group that's doing rites of passage. And years ago, I had uh, I, uh, several other people in the community developed a rites of passage uh, for our youth in the community. So putting back in place these kinds of structures because what the Ma'afa has done to us it has robbed us of these institutions. And um, it has um, uh, removed us from um, our awareness of you know, who we are, that history was, and the kinds of things that were in place, let's say in traditional African societies that we were uh, torn away from. That was, <laughs> I'm speechless. I'm, I'm very much speechless. That was a, uh, that was too powerful. That was so powerful. And 
at this juncture, what I want to really give you the opportunity, because you've already shared at this point so much, a wealth of wisdom <laughs> that I can't even, I can't even name fully. What, what are the, I guess, what's the charge? If you were to give a charge, right, to the, the next generation of, right, our, our students, like the student circle listening, what, what would you say as they enter their careers, as maybe as they begin their education, what would you say that you hope that the next generation that they, they carry on with and they, they, they pursue as they, as they enter their careers? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I have anything different to say, except that um, the, the thing that's going to bring you the most um, reward is the study of self. That we need to study self. But, you know, if we understand that self is just not this physical body that I'm in, and, you know, as we've been talking about, it's, it's about all these various connections that, you know, what, what is made up, what has come to make up who I am, that I, I'm not who I am just because I decided to read some books or, uh, or engage in certain activities. There are all kinds of people um, living and now deceased uh, who have contributed to that. And so recognizing uh, and valuing the uh, having those connections. Now what you're doing is so important. And one of the things that, you know, and, and with the student circle, I just really wanna commend you on what you are doing in terms of making these connections with uh, elders and, um, learning uh, about you know, their experiences and, and, and um, what has helped to shape and mold them. Because you know, each generation should be building on the other generation. Mm -hmm. you know, we shouldn't all have to start out in the same level playing field. Mm -hmm. you know, we should be evolving. And so you're going to be much better. You're gonna be much better uh, because you are going to be able to take whatever it is that we have to offer and to refine that and further develop that. And that's what I want to see is that um, student circle, that they take all of this, they continue to refine it, continue to develop it um, so that um, what, what they come up with and what you come up with is going to be even as Wade Noble says, mo better. And because that's the evolutionary process. Yeah. And so, you know, we haven't done it all. You know, we've made a lot of mistakes, learn from them, grow from them and do better. And you'll make your own mistakes. And then the next generation will have an opportunity to hopefully learn from you and refine that and do better. And that's how we continue to evolve. Mama Roberta, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for giving us your time this evening. I'm realizing as I'm, as I'm talking, I forgot. I was so excited to talk to you. I forgot to introduce myself at the beginning. So if you're listening to the podcast, <laughs> you made it to the very end. <laughs> My name is Evan. <laughs> My name is Evan. I'm the Student Circle Chair, Salabona Healing Circle Co-Chair. And it has been my honor this evening to be in conversation with the the legendary, the brilliant <laughs> Mama Huberta. 
thank you so much again. But thank you, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I truly appreciate what you are doing, what the Student Circle is doing. I think this is extremely valuable work.